Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest, and that's Scott Phillips, who is the Chief Investment Officer at The Motley Fool. Scott has been a member of The Motley Fool since 1999. He has been an active investor for the last 15 years. He also holds a Bachelor of Commerce in Management and has a Graduate Diploma of Accounting. He is a regular contributor to Money Magazine and I love reading his articles and is also a regular commentator in many other media, including on Sunrise. I just wish to add a disclaimer here, which is that discussion in this podcast is by way of general advice on financial literacy. It is not financial advice, and it may or may not suit your individual circumstances. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Serena. It's great to be with you. I, I first came across you on Your Money, the old Sky News business many years ago, <laughs> and I'm super excited about what you're doing and what your community is doing. So I really appreciate the invitation, mate. Thank you. Thank you. That's so kind. It's a shame that Your Money hasn't continued. I really enjoyed what they had to offer. And just to give you a plug back, I really enjoy your articles, especially in Money Magazine. And you had such a great tip recently in Canstar. So always just very insightful in terms of what you offer. That's very kind. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Scott has been a member of Motley Fool since 1999. That's right. Mm-hmm. And he holds a Bachelor of Commerce in Management and a Graduate Diploma of Accounting. And he's managed his own investment portfolio for the past 15 years. As you heard, he's also a regular contributor to a number of sources, including Fairfax, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, Fairfax Press, uh, Sunrise, Nine News, all over. You can't, you can't get away from me. Thanks <laughs> for my apologies. And you're here as well. So you're everywhere, which is fabulous. For better or worse. <laughs> so let's start by asking... What is The Motley Fool? What does The Motley Fool do? Yeah, really, really great question. So The Motley Fool was kind of born with the internet age, and it was born when the, the brothers Gardner, our two co-founders and still remain our co-chairman, pretty much wanted to give an alternative to traditional Wall Street, the Wall Street that cared about itself, cared about its own fees, didn't care too much about the individual retail investor. Um, that was in 1993, feels like a, a lifetime ago, pretty much was. The idea, we, we provide advice for retail investors, people like you and me, quite literally, as you mentioned. I found The Motley Fool as a, as a customer of theirs more than a decade before I actually joined the business. I, I, you know, I joined the business, one of those, remember the old ad on TV, you know, the guy with the, the razor, he liked the company so much he bought it or liked the product so oh, much yeah. he bought the company. Yeah, I remember that. It's kind of that. a bit like that, right? Yeah, it was one of those, was it wasn't Ronson, one of those things. Anyway, there were people yelling at the, at, at the audio device now saying, I know what that is. But yeah, look, I joined the business because they helped me become an investor and become hopefully half good at it. And yeah, it, we, we are all about helping retail investors invest their money with hopefully zero conflicts. We don't take money from anybody else other than a little tiny bit of advertising money from Google and that kind of stuff. If our members like us, they hang around. If they don't like us, they go somewhere else and I get a new job. So we're trying to align our interests with our members and be the business that we would want if we were them. And we could always get it right, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give great advice, market bidding recommendations, hopefully, and good money advice to our members, readers, and to our podcast listeners as well. So you don't have a crystal ball then? No, as it turns out, I don't, which surprises some people, funnily enough. We make stock picks and we get most of them right. My service is beating the market right now, not to brag, just to kind of give it some credibility. Uh, we do have some members who say, you got this one wrong. And we kind of say, well, yeah, that's that's kind of, that, that happens, unfortunately. Yes. But no, no crystal ball, completely broken. Don't claim to have one. And by the way, 
really good tip. If anyone tells you they know what the future's bringing, you should really run away as fast as you possibly can because they're either lying to you or lying to themselves or probably both. Mm. Uh, no one can know. All you can do is set your portfolio up as well as you possibly can. You can't know what the future's going to bring. So the, the more certain you are, the more concerned you should be that maybe you're missing something. That's a good point too because especially post-pandemic and post-bushfires, there's been so many people who are saying, follow this guy. He predicted the last da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's not the first time either. It's like, follow this guy. He predicted the crash. He predicted the this. He predicted the dot-com, whatever, whatever. And chances are they might pick one in a generic terms, but it doesn't mean that they'll pick a second or a third or a fourth. Yeah, there's two groups of people, Serena. There's the group of people who have picked the same crash every year for the last 25 years and finally get it right, in air quotes. In other words, if you, you know, if you bang on the same drum enough, eventually you hit the right note. And the other group, as you say, is just those who simply got lucky enough to be right at the right time. That's the old story about the infinite number of monkeys with an infinite number of typewriters. Eventually, one of them is going to create Shakespeare. It doesn't mean you should back monkeys to, to write more plays. You're exactly right. Look, we know that the GFC had its own, in theory, forecasters. The pandemic did. The dot-com crash did. And you know what? They're not even necessarily wrong or bad or even, even inappropriate. They just they picked it and they picked it well, so great. But does that mean they're going to be good at it on an ongoing basis or just they were, they were right once? You've got to be really careful. You get that wrong and you invest too much behind that. That can really cost you a lot of money. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And I guess all you could really do is the here and now, but with also mm. view to the, the future. And mm. on this, you've written quite a little bit recently that's been very insightful about how COVID has changed the investment landscape in ways that wasn't necessarily apparent at first. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about that? What are some of the trends we've been seeing through COVID? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important one. I, I quite like the question, actually. It's, it's worth thinking about some of those. So COVID did two things in, in broad swathes. First is it accelerated a whole lot of other trends. There was an internet business called Shopify in the US. And they said they had plans for 2030 that they're putting in place now. In other words, their view, and it's, a, you know, it's an easy line to say, but effectively they're saying it brought e-commerce forward by about 10 years. We also know that's true in the US. There was some data released last March, which feels like a lifetime ago, and it was before the worst of the pandemic, of course, where internet penetration of e-commerce went from 15% to over a third in three months alone. And so if you think about that, from the birth of the internet till 2020, Penetration had gone from zero to 15, and then from 15 to 33 in three months. So those things accelerated the trends that were already there. They were going to happen anyway, but they've happened more quickly. And then the other things that are genuinely, potentially new ideas entirely, think about things like how often we're going to work from the office. What do offices look like in the new world? What are things like, again, if you're an investor in, in property trusts or retail investment trusts, they're called, retail, real estate investment trusts, sorry, I should say. They're called, mm. how often are we going to go to the shops? How often are we going to go to the office? What does it mean for second tier? office buildings or, or retailers, for example, retail landlords. And there are some really big changes about the way we live our lives. Online commerce, again, physical retail. Most of those things are probably going to be trends that would have played out anyway. But when they are accelerated by that degree, you want to be a little bit careful. And then, of course, there's the broader economic circumstance of, I, I can't remember a recession. I've certainly never read about a recession that we got out of so incredibly quickly. And I won't say completely just yet because we're still going. But the pace and the speed of the recovery, and frankly, the short, the short length of the current recession or the last recession and, and the relative shallowness, it was bad for three months. It was over after six. And then we're back now with unemployment 6.6%, hopefully going lower uh, sooner rather than later. So it, it was a really, really strange year, 2020. We all know that. But economically and from, a, from an investing perspective, that was absolutely the case as well. It has been interesting times and quite lumpy too, because some yes. people have actually pivoted and done even better than they had mm. prior to 2020. And then 
Some sectors have just been completely decimated and, and they'll never really recover the same way. Some aspects of tourism, for instance, are really suffering. Yeah. Some people are talking about the pink recession, some aspects yeah. of areas particularly that had a lot of women in them, such as retail, never really going to be the same again either. It's, it's been very interesting. It has. It's really tough. Look, if there's a little bit of a, a, a bright light on the horizon, it is that it seems like women are getting jobs back at a faster rate than men after losing them faster. So I'm hopeful that that kind of gets recovered. But I know it's something you're passionate about, but certainly equality when it comes to employment opportunities, the employment recovery, the pink recession you mentioned. It absolutely hit women much harder because it was those part-time jobs that were so easy to drop away. And we know women are overrepresented in, in less secure employment, whether that's casual or gig economy or part-time work. It, it's an easier thing, not initially just because they're women. That may have happened in some circumstances, but that the structure of the workforce meant that if you're going to let people go, you let go of your casuals, your part-timers first. And as you say, that the industries that were hardest hit, tourism, education, leisure, eating out, those kind of things were the big areas. And frankly, some of them haven't come back yet. There are still estimates that one in five tourism businesses will actually go broke before the end of this particular, well, out of the recession, but before the end of the pandemic and, and all the associated after effects. It, it's really, really tough, mate. And I think, if, if the, again, look, I'm an optimist, right? So let me, let me put that on the table. What I like about the recovery from the recession, it was, as I said, it was super fast. And again, I don't get political because I don't really care about the, the politics or the, or the parties, but what we know is hopefully this is a bit of a, a template for the next recession. The, the way that money was brought to bear to minimise the impact of the recession, to get out of it as quickly as possible, again, not forgetting there are individual people still desperately suffering, but at, at a national level, if this were a traditional recession, we'd have 9, 10, 11% unemployment right now, and we'd be 12 months away from a recovery. So hopefully, touch wood, we've learned something about what it means to suffer a recession, but also get out of it quickly. And hopefully governments of any persuasion, all parties, all, all you know, whatever, all politicians, I've learned a list a little bit about how to deal with the next one. Maybe that's too optimistic, but I am hopeful. I think they're good points. And I do remember the last one. I wasn't yet in the workforce. I was at university, but it was very scary starting a university yeah. degree in the middle of a recession and wondering whether you were going to have a job at the end of it because it was so mm-hmm. bleak. It's a bit hard to keep motivated on, on hitting the books when you're under that kind of environment. I did well though. Done. I did though. Well I, I did get a job out of it, and so it's it's, it's all good. Let's move. No, well let's move on to share investing, which is something you're obviously quite passionate about. How easy is it for the average investor to get into share investing these days? Look, it's it's really really easy. Which uh, like I, I try I try to be balanced, by the way, with my with my commentary. I don't always achieve it, but so it's really easy, which is which is fantastic, and it's also potentially a bit troubling or a bit concerning. So let me let me touch on that a little bit. Once there was a time when you had to fill out forms and forms and pages and pages, you had to pay a fortune, you had to try and find a stockbroker, 100 bucks, 150 bucks a trade was, was common. It was a really, I remember when I, was, when I was learning first, you get the AFR and you go to the, the middle section or the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever, depending on what city you're in, I was a Sydney boy. You go through it, grab the middle section, you look up the share prices day by day and you calculate the yields and it feels like a long time ago now. Yeah, uh, so look, it was really it hard to get started. It was really hard to get started. It took time, effort, knowledge, information. These days you can grab a phone, you can download an app and with a relatively few clicks of the button, you can get going and you can trade for either free in some circumstances or very, very low cost, which is sensational. Democratizing investing is really, really important. I think we all know the value of things like super and the ability of us to compound our own money independently. People in the fire movement, for example, who've really turbocharged and doing fantastically well. Really, really great. It's super easy. The flip side, of course, is we know the addiction of games on our phones, Candy Crush, let alone mm-hmm. the ability to check and trade stocks, second, literally second by second, minute by minute, six hours a day in Australia, another six hours a day overnight if you're so inclined. So I, I don't want to be, the, I don't want to rain on, on my own parade. Great that it's super easy. 
But we just have to remember that those temptations, some of those apps, by the way, they use exactly those video game tricks, right? The confetti when you make a trade, the the, the, the dopamine you get when when things you know start to go, we make a trade, great, yeah, congratulations, or the, the the exhortations to take a position, you're smart, you can do it, you you know, decide what to trade here or there. So yeah, look, really easy, which is great. Just if you're if your listeners of yours, just can be a little bit mindful, just to be a little bit careful that they don't get carried away because what can be super easy can turn into something that actually becomes harmful if it's not used well. That's really good advice. Where would be circumstances where it would be harmful? What would be people investing too much or borrowing to invest? Like what would be some examples? Yeah, there are lots of them. So I'll take yours. The investing too much is normally not a problem as long as you're investing it properly. And I'll come back to what that means. Borrowing is a massive no-no. I can't stress highly enough how important it is not to borrow to invest. It seems easy. It seems like one of those things that you know, how bad can it be? Or what more people do, by the way, is the old surveys that say 90% of us think we're above average drivers. It's kind of that problem, right? All of us think, yeah, yeah, Scott, I hear what you're saying about margin lending. Yeah, I, but I, I know it's dangerous to those people, but I won't do it. I'm not one of those people. But all of us think we're not one of those people, which means some of us at least must be wrong. My general saying on that one is better to get rich slowly than go broke fast. So please don't borrow. The, the, the other dangers, though, are more the over-trading problem. I, investing well throughout history by you know, I'll evoke Warren Buffett, there's plenty of others, have saved well, added, invested regularly, and then let time do the thing. Now, you've got to buy the right companies or ETFs, but once you've done that, just leave it alone. You know, investing shouldn't be a hobby in the sense that you're not watching it like if you're watching, you know, a TV show. This is not supposed to be exciting on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. It's supposed to be put the money in, check it in 25 years, and you'll have a lot of money left. That's good investing, right? Because it's on the phone, because it's on the app, you can check the market literally, as I said, six hours a day, you can press the refresh button on your browser or your phone and get the updated share prices. And so many people do, and they think, okay, well, I'm going to sell when it's high and buy when it's low. And so they can sell and buy and sell and buy and sell and realize all of a sudden that they've run out of money because between brokerage and tax and just investment losses, they've actually eaten away a heap of their capital. The other one is being, being super careful. I would say stay right away from things like options. So if you're not doing it, great, stay away from it. Don't have to understand it. Just trust me and leave them alone. CFDs you might see advertised, please stay away from those. They are just absolute terrible, terrible investment ideas. They, they, were really, to use them. they were really big about a decade ago. You know, not only that, so even, even more recently, right, ASIC put out a, a report, I want to say maybe six, nine months ago, got, kind of got lost in COVID, but they were basically saying, please stay the hell away. Up to 90 plus percent of people who trade these things lose money. If, if there's anything that where 90% of the participants lose money, it's a pretty good idea to stay away, right? You get better odds on the poker machine. So just you know, just be be really careful of the stuff that tempts you to do what is not boring, basic, simple, compounding investing. Anything other than that, outside that, is probably dangerous. And that's why I'm a little bit concerned about easy access. Yeah, like I love the fact it's cheap. I love the fact it's easy. I love the fact the barriers are coming down. But you can it can be used against you. And that's what I warn your uh, your listeners and followers just to be very careful of. Well, thank you. That's very sage advice from someone who is not only in the business of advising on investors, but as an investor yourself. Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, I don't own any options. It just, I have my average holding period, I think at the moment must be six or seven years, I think, for the stocks in my portfolio. Just honestly, for all of this noise and and sound and the masters of the universe and the wolves of Wall Street, all that kind of rubbish, common sense basic investing hasn't changed in 50 years. Invest regularly, buy quality, leave it alone. It it really is that, sounds boring, right? And it should be, but that really is that simple as well. Well, that's that's good to know that it is that simple. And speaking of simple, as you know, a lot of people in the FIRE, the financial independence, retire early community, are really keen on ETFs, exchange-traded funds. And the philosophy is that 
It's a great way to diversify. It's relatively cheap. It's relatively safe. And that's all you need to do is just find an ETF you like and just invest. What's your view? Is there still a role for individual shares? And are there any risks in an ETF-based strategy? So that's such a cool question, sorry. So look, I think ETFs are fantastic. I love, like I'm a shares guy and my portfolio is mostly in individual shares. I own some ETFs, by the way. So I put on the time, I own a NASDAQ ETF, I own a, a Vanguard rest of the world ETF. So they, they are they are fantastic instruments. I love them as a concept. A couple of things to be a little bit careful of. You've already talked about costs. And so not all ETFs are the same. They can be different on costs. Some ETFs are really expensive, by the way, because they're managed actively by a group of managers who A, are expensive and B, take a lot of profit. So you want to be super careful. Not all ETFs are the same. Go for the lowest cost one you can possibly find, as long as the ETF itself meets your investment needs. And that's the second thing. All the ETFs aren't created equal in terms of the way they're constructed. Look, the Fire Guys are fantastic. And the ETF idea comes from the old days. Old days, I edgy myself here. Originally, an ETF came from an index fund. Index fund was the broadest possible, most diversified fund that covered a whole market, the entire ASX 200 or the S&P 500 in the US. The biggest, the best, the the, the bluest of the blue chips. And there was, a, there was maybe a dozen of them. These days in the US, there are more ETFs than stocks. Now, if you're asking yourself how that's possible, it's because every fund manager creates an ETF and they can all have the same thing in them, by the way, but they want you to buy theirs, not somebody else's. And then there's a whole lot of stuff where they might invest in a single asset or commodity. There might be gold or it might be tin or it might be growth stocks. And it might be used leverage, for example. They might be internally leveraged. So we're just talking about borrowing to invest. There are, there are some of them invest based on there's a bear ETF, which makes money if the market falls. There's, there's so much stuff around that is there to, let me be really, really clear, separate you from your money, right? Why would someone invent an ETF? They invent an ETF because they want you to buy it, because if you buy it, you'll pay them fees. And so that's the really first, you know, most important thing. So ETFs, love them, love them to death. I think they're fantastic, but make sure you know what you're getting. Go out, buy from a reputable one, buy the most diversified ETF you can find, if that's what you're after, because you want total market access. Don't be sucked into the idea of every ETF is worth buying, or if a broad index ETF is fine, then this double leveraged Gold bear ETF must also be great. They, they are not the same thing. Oils ain't oils, as the old Castrol ad said. Uh, ETFs ain't ETFs, unfortunately. So be a little bit careful. Now, to your second question about the role for shares, I think here's the thing. With an ETF, if you buy an index ETF, and again, I love them. They're my favorite type. You'll get the market return, less a little bit for fees. And for most people, that's enough. And go for it. Like, if that's all you want to do, I, if you never buy one of my services, but you invest well and I've helped you do that, then fantastic, right? That I, I genuinely don't care. Buy an ETF, buy a diversified ETF, add regularly and go fishing or go shopping or do whatever it is you want to do, frugally, of course. You know, you want, you want to go and do that and, and do it successfully. Knock yourself out. That's great. Uh, you will get the market return less a tiny, tiny bit for fees. The, the role of shares is if you want to do something a little bit different to that, if you have a, an appetite for a little bit of extra risk to try and beat the market and get an even better return, then shares can be great. I know some fire guys, by the way, who also do a combination of ETF and shares for exactly that reason. Now, if it doesn't work out, don't, don't keep doing it, by the way. It's like the old Definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If you're not a good share investor, don't do it. Go back to ETFs. But if you if you get good at picking shares or, or being able to add to your returns and therefore retire earlier by, by improving your returns, that's the role for shares if you choose them well. But be mindful. They are riskier. They are a higher chance of losing money and you will get a more volatile return with them. Now, I think there's upsides as well, by the way. But, but if you're going to do it, add shares to your ETF portfolio. Just be mindful. That's the sort of experience you're likely to have. 
Well, thank you. I think there's some good reasons for investing in ETFs and shares and thinking really critically about both. And I know you have touched on this on some of your writings, but it's been really fascinating with COVID to look at the winners and losers because a traditional kind of portfolio would have had a lot of things, mining and airplanes, for instance, Qantas mm-hmm. and others. and Travel um, and tourism, for sure. Travel yeah. and tourism and financial services. And mm-hmm. yeah, and they haven't necessarily all been the winners during COVID. Yeah. And that's, I, I got to say, like, I, I love ETFs. So my general view of people is, is buy ETFs for sure. My concern a little bit on the Australian ETFs, for what it's worth, though, of, of, all, the, of all the global ETFs, my concern with the Australian ones is that the Australian market is super, super concentrated, right? So something like a third of the market in Australia, depends on the week, is banking and finance. And about another 20-odd percent is mining. When we say buy, buy an ETF because they're diversified, you're, kind of, you're buying an ETF that has half its weight made up of two individual sectors, both of which, frankly, I don't expect to be massive outperformers over the future. Now, yes, I'm adding a view to that from a stock picker's perspective. So you can choose to ignore it just by the ETF. But if I'm going to buy an ETF, I'd actually rather have a non-Australian one, quite honestly, at the moment, because I don't think the future is super bright for profit growth for the banks or the miners because of the industry dynamics. We won't go into a whole lot of that. But I think your point is, is absolutely right, Serena, that if you think about what's doing well, it is the businesses, the growth businesses that are the businesses of the future. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do well with banks, you can't do well with miners. But if you think about it, it is are BHP or Rio likely to be able to get increasingly higher prices for iron ore? Probably not. Are banks really going to be able to get massive double-digit profit growth unless house prices double and double again? Probably not. And so you think, okay, well, half, if half the market is kind of structurally challenged, I won't say it's going to do terribly, but let's just call it structurally challenged, then you're kind of relying on the rest of the market to do the heavy lifting. And that's where, to my mind, as much as I'd love to say to people, go and buy an ASX 200 ETF and, and leave it alone, I do worry a little bit on that particular one on that basis. Buy an S&P 500 one, for sure. By a global ETF, absolutely, you'll get the global success stories. But if you think about what makes up the big companies on the indexes in the US, you're talking about the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Netflixes, the business of tomorrow, the Teslas here, the biggest companies are the big four banks, Telstra and a couple of supermarkets. And again, they're great business, they're fine. But if you think about what's likely to be better performing over the next 10 or 15 years, I, I've, got a, I've got a pretty good sense that it won't be the banks and miners beating the big tech companies over the next 10, 15 years. So you just want to be a little bit mindful of how those ETFs are made up. And that's where I think individual stocks can help. As you said, the the trends that drove the market and the economy over the last six and seven months weren't the traditional usual suspects. And those who invested in some of the growth businesses, like the ones you talked about, the e-commerce retailers, even things like Bunnings and Officeworks, have done really, really well. Oh my goodness, Bunnings. Like It's so hard to get a car space. (laughs) Who would have thought during COVID? But all these people who either were in between work or they're working from home, they suddenly had all that time and they're looking around them and thinking, oh, there's a lot I need to renovate here. So guilty, guilty, uh, a guilty pleasure, if you like, or guilty answer at least. I did have a job right through that, thankfully. I'm very thankful for it. But my weekend pursuits, given we couldn't go out that much, I built a chicken coop in my backyard and I, and I spent plenty of money at Bunnings in doing so. So I was absolutely contributing to that one. I was probably in the car space you wanted, sorry. Fabulous. Well, can I ask then, is that your frugalist a tip? Is that um, what you do to be a bit more frugal at home, have chooks at home? We have chooks and veggies. That's absolutely part of partly Partly a kind of healthier living. And, and also we have our eight-year-old son. So part of that is just kind of understanding where food comes from, but absolutely saves us a decent amount of money. Although I do wonder after paying for the chicken coop, I might've been better to buy, buy uh, eggs from the supermarket instead. One tip I do have though, and this is probably one that I'm sure your followers know well, some of those subscribe and save kind of plans from some of the retailers are an easy way to save a few bucks on stuff you would buy anyway. Amazon has one. I mentioned I'm a shareholder for the record. Even Pet Circle, I don't know anything about them as a business, but our dog food comes regularly from them. And you save just by subscribing. You can cancel, you can delay the orders. 
but they're happy to give you a discount just if you enroll in their subscription service and get what you'd already be buying. So as long as you don't get sucked into buying extra, it's just a super simple way to save a few percent on something. I think it's 10% on both those services. Just for buying something you would have bought anyway. Like it's, it literally is money for jam. Uh, so they're, they're better ideas, but as a, as a new one for us, that's, a, that's my most recent one. It's just literally like it's, it's, it's purely money for jam for buying what I already buy anyway, just by enrolling in their subscription services. Yeah, that's a that's a good tip to be a member of things where you like to buy. And not that I particularly espouse any particular retailer, but I do mm-hmm. find that the Amazon one is actually quite good value because not only do you get expedited shipping and in a lot of cases free shipping and special deals, but you also get Amazon Prime as well, which I really mm-hmm. enjoy their content for their streaming services as well. And a lot of people don't know that that's included. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, big up Amazon too much, because eh, I know you don't want to support necessarily individual retailers or some shareholders. So I don't want to be seen to be too conflicted there. But yeah, look, if you're getting, if you're getting, I won't say something for nothing because you're paying for it, but if you're getting enough additional benefit or you can offset some spending otherwise, and whether it's that or whether it's as another retailer, pet retailer or something else, these guys spend so much money trying to acquire you as a customer and remind you to come back. But if you just say, hey, I'm going to buy my next, whatever it is, bag of dog food from, from you as a retailer, they'll say, great. If I don't have to, if I don't have to try and convince you to keep coming back, I'll give you a 10 cent discount just for buying what you probably would have bought anyway, probably from them anyway. And you're getting money. And you, you know, so you can cancel the order, you can delay the order. I mean, unless you end up with 15 bags of dog food or you end up adopting a dog because you've got so much extra food, there's kind of, I always say there's no downside, but as long as you manage it, I think it is money for jam. Exactly. And in some cases, you can combine them with some other sort of cashback programs. So I think there's three that I know about in Australia. There's cash rewards, okay. there's shop back, and there's also super rewards, which pays into superannuation. And I think there's a couple awesome. of other programs too. I think Ray's used to have one. I don't know if they still do. So some other sorts of programs where you mm-hmm. can get cash back as well on top of the membership and other things. How good's that, right? I, I will say, look, because I'm an investor, the adding a super thing, I think it's just the world's best idea, right? Like I know a lot of people just need the extra dollars they're saving. I wouldn't criticize anyone for taking the money and spending it on their household needs they've got. But if you can find a way to put some money back for the future, your future self will thank you. You don't notice it so much going now if you can afford to put that money aside. Letting it compound for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years for some people if they're listening to you who can then benefit from that. If I could, if I could do one thing for every Australian, it would be to really help them understand like properly, not just hear it and get a nod, but genuinely internalize the idea of compounding. The value of that, turning a dollar into $64 at some future point, or then $1,000 and 64000 and so on, it would, it would honestly change lives, countries, societies, the whole lot if we just really get that into people's heads. So yeah, we're exactly right. If you, can, if you can find a way to take some of that benefit and then put it away, I think that's a spectacular idea. It's that moment when you're talking to someone about compound interest and particularly when you look at tables and things like that and the penny drops, it's just magic. You, cool, mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned you've got an eight-year-old a child. Well, I've got an eight-year-old son and an 11-year-old son and at the moment, I'm starting to work out how to talk to them about compound interest. My eight-year-old mm. is a bit of a maths whiz. He loves maths. Oh, cool. So nice. He gets that concept. But it is, it's a hard one to teach to kids because they sort of don't get this concept of how things mm. exponentially grow. Yeah. But it's not only hard for kids, it's hard for adults. Some of the uh, – back to shares for a second. I will mention Amazon again. And my apologies. I know I own the shares. But even analysts, like people like me who are supposed to know better, it, yeah, Amazon grew 38% last year, right, revenue. If you had said to somebody in 1997, this business will be growing at 38% in 20 years, at 24 years' time, you couldn't have got any responsible analyst to put it in a spreadsheet because it just seems so outlandish. So even that, that compounding, as you mentioned, it, it's, it's hard for adults to do, let alone for kids. And I think you're exactly right. Even if you, and even if you know it, if you intellectually understand the idea, internalizing it properly, like really genuinely internalizing it, it's just really, it's stupidly difficult. It just seems so, it, 
we're used to thinking linearly as humans. The idea of thinking exponentially, as you as you mentioned, is so incredibly difficult to try and internalize for myself, let alone trying to teach other people. But it is if you if you can get it, as you say, uh, sorry, when you see that that penny drop, you hear the eyes light up. I don't reckon there's well, there's probably better feelings in the world. I'm sure saving lives is much more important and much better. But for me, given my limited range of of abilities and and uh, opportunities, that that's that's my kind of highlight when I see some people who get a better rate in their mortgage or save a few bucks or invest a few more dollars and get compounding. They're the things that keep me going, right? As much as I'm, I'm here to pick stocks and whatever, it's those moments when, when I see people kind of go, oh, oh, I get it. That, that I live for that stuff. It's just brilliant. Yeah, it is. It is actually life-changing. And it mightn't be saving lives in terms of being in ER, but it is often saving relationships. It is often mm-hmm. saving people's sanity and giving them more choice in their life and, and other things. So I definitely hear you. Nice, thank you. So, Scott, how can people find you? You're obviously you're a regular commentator in the press. Where else can people find you, and how can they connect to what you do? All right, so pro- yeah, probably probably harder to avoid me than to find me sometimes, particularly on free to air or or on the press. If you're on social media, it's probably the simplest way. Isn't like I don't want to overly plug this, but to your point, if people do want to look me up, TMF, so the Motley Fool, TMF Scott P. I'm on I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Scott Phillips Money, Scott Phillips Money, one word on Facebook. They're, they're the page you can get me on on socials. You go to our website, uh, it's fool.com.au for those who care. It's not a plug just for what it's worth. I do, we do a, a free mail with some marketing, so I email that. But if you stick on the socials, you'll see all the stuff I write. Mostly some of the stuff I kind of keep for those other people because Money Magazine and others prefer me to do that, which is fine. But they're the best places. They're free, so nice and frugal. If, you, if you're on one of those social networks, jump on, you'll see most of the stuff I write. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And if you have enjoyed this podcast as much as I have, please make sure to subscribe, leave a comment, Share with your friends, tell everyone, and also join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group so you can comment on these themes and others. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thanks, Serena. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley.